Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, we welcome you. It really encourages us that you're here. If you would be marking or opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. We will have slides tonight, but most of the verses that we'll read tonight will be out of 1 Corinthians 7, and you might enjoy just opening your Bible or borrowing one in the pew. Be on page 1017. <clears throat> As we think about... VBS, and we'll mention that in just a moment. So much good to be looking forward to. Our teen vacation Bible school that was Monday through Thursday of this past week was just an amazing success. Glory be to God for that. We are so thankful for the fine young people that we have uh, that really make those type of endeavors a rich experience uh, because of their love for the Lord and their investment in such things. Each day we had a young man uh, to uh, give a devotional, uh, to teach a lesson, another young man led singing, and uh, another young man prayed. And those, those 15 minutes or so was some of the richest time of the Vacation Bible School. And you know, the old man in me wants to make those guys or ask those guys to stand up, but I know the young man in them would rather me not, I guess. But I, you know, ask around, if, if you got kids or grandkids, ask around who it was and, and be sure and congratulate. Uh, There's about 12 guys involved in that and, and I'm telling you, they did a superb job. And uh, we, we just have so many talented young men and young women and we are so thankful for them. Uh, we had over 100 average each day and that's just 7th through 12th grade. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing. But here we are looking forward to Vacation Bible School tomorrow and that's 3 year old through 6th grade. Through 6th grade. And uh, you know, you see walking around just tonight when uh, the pew packers were up here, it gives you just a little bit of taste of what tomorrow is going to be like and it's exciting. I also in the last week or two, like many of you, have seen individuals that have been at this building for hours upon hours upon hours. And to each of them, we are truly grateful. You do so much for our children. And uh, really, you carry not only a heavy workload, you carry a heavy stress load. It's just that stress of vacation Bible school starts in the morning. We have to have it all together. And for all of that burden you carry, we thank you. Parents and grandparents, get your children here. What a rich blessing it's going to be for them to be a part of Vacation Bible School tomorrow. And let's make sure that our children, our neighbors, uh, relatives that we have that live just in a neighboring town, make sure that they don't miss out on it. Go home this evening and give them a call. I know that the main reason you're here tonight is to worship God. I believe that with all my heart, but I also know you're looking forward to the ice cream that's following. And we are thankful for those of you that have brought that, and we do look forward. And we want to take this moment to say, if you're a guest tonight with us, we really, really beg you to stay and eat with us. We always have plenty of homemade ice cream, and, uh, and, and we want you to join us. We'd love to have that opportunity to visit with you. And so please stay and join us right after services. It'll be just to the rear of our building. You just walk out any of these exits and go to the rear of the building, and you'll see it there. Also, the 12questions.net is exciting. Many of our teens that want to participate in the one-on-one -on -one Bible studies met this afternoon at 4, and they were marking their Bibles for that study. And it was just, again, so exciting to see young people that want to learn how to better teach the Bible one-on-one. -on -one. And I know many adults have been going through that. Let's all find our place. We don't all do the same thing, but let's find our place to be involved in this campaign. And that's what that little sheet that's been scattered around... <clears throat> the auditorium, and please fill that out. It's kind of like a little involvement sheet about the campaign, and turn that in. The box is in the foyer, and straight out these doors, it's just a little bit to your right. And be sure and uh, submit those and turn those in. 
In life, the things that have the potential to bring the highest mountain peak experiences in our life are the only things that also have the potential of bringing some of the deepest valleys. That's the sad reality of life. For many people, many could say some of my highest mountaintop experiences has been in relation to my marriage. And yet for many of those same people, they can also say some of my deepest valleys have been experienced through my marriage. It may very well be that, that you had a spouse for 50 or 60 years and you had so many wonderful memories together and they were mountaintop experiences, but then the valley of their death came and it created a deep, painful sorrow and grief. It may be that you had 10, 15 great years together and then something has happened in your marriage that you totally was unexpected to you and it created a deep valley. Listen, what I want you to see from the study tonight in 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, is that we're not the first generation or the first society or nation that has dealt with struggles in marriage. And so tonight, I can't say that maybe whatever you faced in your life, that we can answer it, but I'll tell you what we will do. We'll try to look briefly at seven different topics that Paul addresses about marriage as apparently they have been writing a letter to Paul and you see from the very first verse, and, and by the way, in the very next screen on the first verse, I don't know how I did this, but the first line of the first verse isn't there, okay? But notice the first line says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Remember we talked about that this morning. They wrote him some things, and apparently the way 1 Corinthians 7 is laid out, there must have been several things that they asked Paul about marriage. And he doesn't, every time he changes topics about marriage, even within this, over the big umbrella of marriage. He doesn't say, you wrote me about this. You wrote me about this. But it seems to be several of these things they must have questioned him about. And so it's not just a smooth transition, but yet it's all in the seventh chapter, somewhat under the umbrella of marriage. And so let's, let's kind of set a goal for ourselves so that the ice cream doesn't melt. Let's say that we'll try to spend two to three minutes on each of these seven, and then the lesson is yours. The first few should be pretty quick because this is a review of some things we covered this morning, but to get the whole chapter, let's think about this. Number one, is it better not to marry? You remember in the seventh chapter, verse one, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman? Remember, we looked this morning, it's good, but it's not better. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. If you're making notes, make a note for you to go back and read Hebrews the 13th chapter and verse 4. Hebrews 13 and 4 says, marriage is honorable in all. Notice, he, he doesn't say that celibacy is honorable and it is supreme. Marriage is honorable. And, and as a matter of fact, when you think about who is it by God's design, now keep in mind, if you want to go out and start your own church, you can organize it any way you want. We don't want to be a denomination. We want to become a part of the Lord's church that was established about 2,000 years ago. His church, did he esteem leaders that were celibate? Go back and read 1 Timothy, the third chapter. We read about the office of bishop or sometime called elder and we read about the office of deacon and what were both of those required to be filled with? Men who were married and had children. 
Isn't that interesting that by God's design, it's not to esteem celibate leaders, but instead by God's design, and he says in 1 Timothy 3rd chapter and verse 4, that that man, when he learns how to lead his house, it's going to be a blessing for him to be able to lead the Lord's family in such a way. We talked a lot the last few weeks, just here and there, in the last few months, about how we're family. And just like us tonight, we worship together and we're going to enjoy eating together. That's what families do. Isn't it interesting? That's the way he lays out leadership in 1 Timothy, the third chapter. He says, I want there to be men that first they can lead their home and they can do it well. Let them come in and lead the church family and let them do it well. So that gives us an idea of the first question. Is celibacy better? God, through Paul, would say, no, it's good. But no, it's not better. Number two. What about deprived spouses in verse 5? A simple answer. We studied this this morning. We'll just mention it again quickly. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In verse 3, we were pay to render the affection due. In verse 4, the husband no longer has authority over his body, but the wife and vice versa also. What is the point? The point is simply this. By God's design, there should not be a deprived spouse. And if there is, God's simple teaching through Paul is this. Stop doing it. That's the simple teaching. And, and remember, back in the sixth chapter, your body belongs to the Lord, so use your body the way the Lord says to do it. Honor marriage. This is a part of marriage. Love your spouse. You see, there's, there's three reasons there not to deprive. Number one, because I love God. Number two, I honor the holy institution of marriage. Number three, I love my spouse. That is three great reasons to say, I want to fulfill the obligations and responsibilities. With ownership comes responsibility. I want to fulfill the responsibility that God has given me as a husband or as a wife. Number three, what do we do with burning passion, burning desires? Look at verse nine. But if you cannot, let's go, let's go back up and read verse 8. And that's probably not on the screen, but we'll get there to verse 9. But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you have been here for the last few weeks and you have been a part of this study through 1 Corinthians 6 and then into the 7th chapter what we see clearly is Paul giving strong admonition to say sexual desires can quickly get out of control and can really mess up the reputation of the church. It can mess up a marriage. It can mess up a life. I beg you to be humble enough to realize that. Paul is dealing with not just a delicate topic, Paul is dealing with a powerful topic. And isn't it interesting that when we come to the seventh chapter, he says, let me tell you, there is, there is an institution. That sounds cold, but it is. There is a relationship. That's much warmer. There is a relationship that God has designed that just as powerful as sexual desires can be, God has designed a relationship and an institution that is strong enough to house and control those if we're willing to yield ourselves to God. If someone says, what is it? What is it? In the first verse through the ninth verse, the teaching in the seventh chapter is marriage. 
marriage should be a healthy place to conduct our life and fulfill physical needs. It is so, so very important. And perhaps that's enough said at this time and in this audience. Look, if you will, in verse 10 and 11. And we deal with the topic of probably something that they ask him about separation. Uh, we don't know exactly what was asked, but immediately he just jumps into something that they probably knew a little bit more about the question than what we know, but we see the answer. Look at verse 10. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And by the way, that doesn't take away from any authority. Remember, Paul wrote not only 1 Corinthians 7, he wrote about 13 different epistles by the authority of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so for him to say that doesn't mean that, okay, my writing is not as important as Jesus. It's very dangerous. Don't ever be uh, deceived by a red letter edition of the Bible. It doesn't mean that the red letters are more important than the black letters. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so he's saying, let me teach you this. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And then he adds, a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, a husband could divorce. And he's saying, husbands, don't divorce your wife. He says, wives, don't separate from your husbands. Now, they would have known, surely, the teaching of Matthew, the 19th chapter, where Jesus gives the exception, where he says, now, for this reason, it's for the reason of fornication, you can divorce. And you can marry again. But he says, okay, he doesn't mention that exception, but it's there in Scripture. And he says, I urge you, number one, don't separate. Number two, if you do separate, see, number one, don't do it. But if you do, remain unmarried. If you're not going to remain unmarried, let it be because you're going back and you have reconciled with your husband. God's plan is monogamy. God's plan is a commitment for life together. Makes it very, very clear. All right, what about in 12 through 16? And let's look at this topic of what about if a Christian was married to a non-Christian? And, and with this, keep in mind, many of these were young Christians. And so probably what was happening was that one of the spouses was converted to Christianity and probably the other spouse wasn't converted to Christianity and, and they, they read passages like, for example, 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. And I'm not suggesting this, this deals only with marriage or anything like that. But I am saying the principle does or, or could be applied to that. And think about what he says later in 2 Corinthians 6 and 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And he continues on there. So you can imagine these individuals that are young in the faith, and as we talked about this morning, they're still trying to na navigate their way through Christian marriage. Many of them had never seen, more, more than likely, they had never seen in their life what God was asking them to live. And so they're trying to learn the way. And you can imagine them saying, okay, I know God doesn't want us to have any union and, and close fellowship with the world. But I have become a Christian and my spouse hasn't. What does God expect of me? Does he expect me to leave my spouse so that I don't have close fellowship with the world? What, what does he expect of me? And so let's read these verses and see what he expects. Look what he says in verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not 
divorce her. If you're taking notes and you want to jot down 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 1 and 2, we see the very same principle. A woman in that passage in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, a woman is married to an unbelieving husband. What is she to do? She's continued to submit to him. She's continued to live a chaste and righteous example. And it's not by her nagging, but it is by her example that he might be one to the Lord. It doesn't say it's probable, but it says it's possible. All right, so now let's, we've got that laid out in 12. So the answer is, in other words, they probably were writing to him saying, my spouse is, is not a Christian. I am a Christian. Should I leave them? And so immediately in verse 12, he says, no, if they're willing to stay with you, Christians are not in the business of wrecking marriages. Absolutely not. Look in 13. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Same principle, just flip there. Look at 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And so he gives a motive behind it more than just honoring marriage, which that alone is high and significant. Hey, honor the vows that you've made in marriage. But then he goes on to say, being around a Christian is, should be a powerful influence. Where could you have a greater influence than when you live with someone every day? When you come home and dwell with them. I want you to think about this, even if you and your spouse both are Christians. Shouldn't your spouse have the blessing of being able to experience what it's like to live every day of the week in the best of times and the most difficult times with a faithful Christian? Think of the impact that has upon any family when dad, the husband comes home and he's a faithful Christian in all things. Think of the impact that it has upon the family when mom and the wife comes home and she's a faithful Christian in all things. Now think especially of that impact if the husband's not a Christian and the wife is and she comes home and in everything she reflects Christ. What if she says, no, he's not, he's not a Christian. I'm going to leave. And that's where Paul says, whoa, how's your spouse going to get that holy influence? And then he even brings in the children. How are the children going to have that holy influence? And so it is. It is a great concern for all of us to think about our influence. Just that kindness and that gentleness and that forgiving and that long-suffering. All of those beautiful characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are things that our family ought to see in all things. Now, we've talked about if the unbeliever wants to stay. Notice if the unbeliever does not want to stay, verse 15 and 16. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now we know when we start at the beginning of Matthew, the 19th chapter, the very beginning is, can you divorce for any cause? And he spends about nine or ten verses there saying, absolutely not. You can't divorce. Oh, but Moses allowed it. No, you can't divorce for any cause. And yet here he shows one 
exception in addition to that of fornication where the divorce would not be sin. So if your spouse has committed fornication and divorce, the innocent party is not sin. If you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I absolutely am not staying with someone who is a Christian. And they say, I'm divorcing. You've not sinned. All right, let's go on to number six. In verse 26, we see a present distress that if you've never studied this closely, it's probably going to frustrate you because all I can say to you is nobody knows what the present distress is, okay? So even though we can't answer that, what we can do is give a principle that all of us should keep in mind. In verse 26, we see the beginning of this addressing of the present distress, or really back in 25, but look in 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And over the next several verses, 27, 28, 29, what he's saying is if you're married stay married and if you're not married right now would probably be a good time not to marry but then he goes out and says I'm just giving you my opinion on this if you're not married and you decide you want to go out and marry he literally says you have not sinned so then that brings us back to what is the present distress that would cause such a time you know some have just illustrated and said you know in times of war that's probably not a time where you'd say, this would really be a great time. Your country, there's, there's conflict going on at home and in your, in your community and in your nation. Why would you not perhaps want to marry and have children? There can be a lot of stressful situations in life. Think about whether it be natural disasters like famine or whatever it might be, military conflicts. And on and on our minds could could, could kind of flip over thinking of scenarios where you'd say, you know what, this probably wouldn't be the best time to say, I want to take on the responsibility of other people in my life. Let me take on a wife. Let's have children. And so that seems to be what he is addressing here. They would have known what the present distress was because they probably wrote him about it. And so his advice to them is, I'm not saying you're sinning if you're married. I'm just saying right now would probably be a good time not to go through that. But here's what I want you to see that the principle that we all need to understand. Notice this description. Still with this in mind in verse 34. Verse 34. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now in this verse, that phrase, cares for the world, is not a sinful or a negative connotation. What he's saying is he's saying there are people that she shares this world with and she has gone into the commitment of marriage and so this woman is going to have to care for her husband. Can she do as much in the work of what we would say church work? No, she can't. And in this present stressful situation, he's using that principle to say, maybe now is not a good time to take on additional responsibility. But here's what I want you to see from it that I think is very powerful. He's not saying that to take care of a husband or a wife or children is a negative thing. He's just saying it's additional responsibility. Husbands or wives, please hear this. When you go home and you go about your week this week, 
and you take care of your husband and you take care of your wife as a godly Christian spouse should, you are doing some of the most important kingdom work that there is to do. Can you do as much as someone who is single in direct, let's just call it church work? That's what he's implying here. He's like, no. If you decided to never marry, you could devote more time to other ministries. But again, it's kind of like the very first principle we looked at today. It's not that that is better. It's just a fact. You know, we have a lot of young mothers and, and fathers. And many of us can remember those days where you looked at ministry opportunities and, and maybe you feel a little bit of guilt. We just can't do everything that we want to do. Take care of those babies. Raise them up in the Lord. And you're doing the most important work that God has given you to do at this time. Does that mean neglect the church? Absolutely not neglect the church. But there is a fact that when you decided to marry, you've made the decision to say, this is important kingdom work to me. Take care of your spouse. You, you had children, whether you decided to or not. You have children. And now that has become an important decision that comes with a great responsibility. And let's make sure, and, and I hope, that as an active church, that we never make a husband or a wife or a mother or a father feel guilty for taking care of their family. And yet at the same time, don't use that as an excuse and a crutch to not get involved in the work that you have the opportunity to do. But it's wonderful when we can balance that out and do things the way God wants. And then finally tonight, and, and I think this is real important, and, and I don't mean this in a I don't mean this in, in any kind of mean spirited or cruel way. But sometimes I'm fearful that this very direct verse that we're about to read is not known among brothers and sisters in Christ as it ought to be known. And this is important. When God states something black and white, it's important that we know it. It's terrible to have something so important that we don't know. And so, so let's make sure before we close here that we all know this. And so he speaks to widows, and I'm sure this principle would apply also to widowers, uh, but usually there's just a lot more widows than there are widowers. And, and look in verse 39, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. I don't know how to state that any clearer. It's not up to me to state it. God's the one that stated it. But God states it very, very clear. You've had a husband, and I assume it would be true for a widower. You've had a wife. They've passed away. Maybe that first one, maybe you weren't as spiritual as what you ought to be. And maybe you married someone who wasn't a Christian, and, and he says, look, I'm talking to you now as a, as a faithful Christian. You marry only in the Lord. Don't marry someone that is not in the Lord. How do you get in the Lord? Well, according to Galatians, the third chapter, verse 27, according to Romans 6 and verse 3, you are baptized into Christ, into the Lord. So what we're talking about is someone who is a believer that has repented of their sins, 
They've confessed that Jesus is His Son of God. They've been baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. And He says, now, widow, when you go and you consider, are you going to marry again? Make sure that you only marry one that is in the Lord. Seven things. Just a quick review. Is it better to not marry? No, celibacy isn't praised by Paul. Can we deprive our spouses? Absolutely we can. And the solution in verse 5 is don't. Verse 9, what do we do with burning passions? He says marriage is a strong enough institution and relationship to handle that. What about separation? Verse 10 and verse 11, he says, please don't do it. If you do it, remain single and, and be reconciled or be reconciled to your spouse. And then in the fifth one, what about Christians married to non-Christians? What, what should you do there? Stay with them. And if they're willing to stay, if they're not willing to stay, uh, live in peace. Let them depart. And then the sixth thing we looked at was this present distress. That we really don't know what the present distress was, but we have a valuable teaching that comes out of it. And that is value your family. It's kingdom work. It's important. And no, you're not going to be able to do as much as, as, as you otherwise could in other ministries, but take care of your family. And then number seven, the remarriage of a widow ought to be only in the Lord. I hope your relationship and your marriage is a great blessing. But the truth is we're imperfect people married to imperfect people and there's always going to be challenges along the way. Tonight, Let's make sure that we are who God has designed us to be. Let's go into our families. We can't live their lives, but we can live our life. Let's take a faithful Christian into our family, into our church family, into our community. If we can help you with that walk, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ or ready to rededicate your life, if we can help you.